Well, I'm excited that we are now moving from 1 John, and we are in these weeks leading up to Easter going to do a sermon series entitled The Gospel of Matthew Leading to the Resurrection. Uh, What we want to do is this idea of the Holy Week, these days leading up to the crucifixion, the resurrection, celebrating that in Easter. We want to take moments to look at some of the key, like big moments in Jesus' journey to the cross and to the resurrection that he spoke into our lives. Some of the things that he thought, hey, this is of great value as I'm about to go to the cross and resurrect. And so this morning, if you want to, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're actually going to look at two entire uh, chapters of Scripture this morning. So we're going to do that in 38 minutes, I believe it. Um, and so it's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose this morning. I'm going to uh, paraphrase and, and kind of help us journey through 24 and 25. And then at the end, kind of get to the summation of this big, what's called the Olivet Discourse. This is a moment with Jesus and his disciples talking about some prophecy in the end times. But he says, hey, this is, this is important as I am about to journey to the And so uh, I want you to go ahead and get prepared for that. What he's going to be teaching us this morning can kind of be surmised in the idea of being prepared, being ready, and waiting well. Those are the two things that Jesus is going to bring all this to a head is going, hey, are you ready? Are you prepared? And and are you waiting well? I don't know about you guys. Uh, I've got three kids. Uh, every school day and school morning and school night is about the same. <laughs> yeah, we get to about bedtime. I'm like, hey, look, we got school in the morning. We're going to be out of this house by 7.15, 7.20. Go get in bed. Let's go to sleep. Let's get ready. Let's get prepared because in the morning I don't want to have to fight you over all this stuff. Uh, and I have three, and, and one of them, my daughter, is like the golden child, as always, right? The firstborn daughter. Um, she is <laughs> very much in her preteen life already. She's like, yep, time for bed. I'm going to go get in my bed. I'm going to turn on like my, my thunderstorm sounds on the Google. She has a little thing that goes over her mask. She turns the light off. She's like, don't talk to me. Don't see me. I'll see you in the morning. Uh, the other side is like my, my, my boys who are like, I will fight you to the death until I go to sleep. So that's kind of our nighttime routine. Um, Hannah will literally set her alarm for 6 a.m., get up by herself. First thing she does, I've heard her. She's like, Google, uh, what's the weather like? Okay, cool, I'm going to get dressed. She gets up, makes her own breakfast, packs her own bags, and then she's like, if if I'm honest, there's mornings where she's like, Mom, Dad, time to get out of bed. Let's go. we got to get to school at 7.15. And so she's waking the boys up. They're yelling at her for even talking to them. But in this time, she's like prepped and she's, she's using her time well. Like she's using her time. She'll, she'll start packing everybody else's lunch. She'll make the boys breakfast. I'm like, dude, you are a godsend. Thank you, Lord, for Hannah. Because there's a lot of mornings Katie's gone at 5 a.m. to go to work. And so it's just me and the kiddos. Um, and so she helps get that done. But then the opposite is true when I go to the boys' room. They literally act like they have lost functionality of their bodies for the first hour of getting them out of bed and trying to go to school. They're like, I don't know. Do I live here? Where are my clothes? I don't know, Dad. I don't know where breakfast or a cup is. So it's like you have to do everything for them. And then it never fails. The whole time Hannah's going, hey, it's uh, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes. And the boys will sit on the couch, and I'm like, surely they're ready to go. And the time comes, 7.15, hey, we're getting in the truck. And Hannah sometimes literally has already started the truck and is sitting in the truck. And in that moment, my boys are usually like, they, they act as though they've never heard the word school before in their life. They're like, wait, wait, we're going to school? What, are we, is that, what does 7.15 even mean? And they're like, I don't have my shoes on, still haven't brushed my hair. And if mom's home, there's times where I'm like, look, guys, I'm, I'm done. 
You're riding with mom. I don't know why they all want to ride with me. I'm like, just ride with your mother. Let me sleep. You ride with mom. But they all want to ride with me. And I'm like, hey, look, you're not ready. You didn't wait well. Like, you've been waiting on this couch. I don't know what you've been doing. You didn't wait well, and I'm leaving. And I'll close the door, and I'll leave them, and they ride with their mom, and they're late to school. And this is this incredible picture of being prepared and waiting well and not being prepared and not waiting well. And what Jesus is going to teach us in the Olivet Discourse is very much this idea of, hey, there, there is a, there's a definite time in history where I'm going to come back and things are going to go down. Are you prepared and are you waiting well? And so with that being said, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. We'll start here because what the disciples do is they ask a question that kind of elicits this two-chapter response from Jesus. It's very important. He thought, hey, this, this is probably one of the most important things I'm going to say because after this, it all goes down. The cross comes, the resurrection happens. He's going, before I leave, this is massively important for you to understand because it's going to tell you why you're going to see the things you're going to see. And so leading up to 24, uh, right before that, in chapter 21, the triumphal entry has happened, right? Jesus comes in on the donkey. Everybody's waving the palm branches, uh, singing Hosanna, glory in the highest, like he's come. The Messiah has finally made his way to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, the temple of, uh, of God, and he cleanses the temple. And then as they're leaving, the disciples are like, Jesus, look at the building. Like, look at this temple. And the, the temple of God was one of the most magnificent structures that was ever built in history. We're, you're talking like 15-ton stones to make this building. And they're looking at it. They're going, man, look at this, Lord. This is, you're the king. And Jesus goes, it, it won't be long where every single stone in this temple will be turned over. There will not be one stone left upon another. And they're going, man, this is crazy. In AD 70, right, Rome comes in and does this. This happens. But the disciples are confused. And so they begin in 24 by asking this question. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now, I love this. this is why it's the Olivet Discourse, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking down at the Kidron Valley. You've got Israel or Jerusalem in, in the foreground. The temple is there. If you've seen pictures, it's like where you see the gold dome where the Muslims have that temple now. It's in this moment. It's the same place where Scripture says Jesus is going to return to. Like This is where it's all going to come. He's, so he takes his disciples to the same place he's going to return in. He sits them down, and they go, hey, Jesus... Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So they ask a fair question. Like, when is this going to happen, Lord? Like, you just came into Jerusalem, you just cleansed the temple, and in their mind, Jesus has come to be the king. The Messiah is going to be the king that takes back the rule of Jerusalem from the Romans. He's going to establish this kingdom that all the prophets have been talking about. And, and probably in the disciples' mind, they're going, this is going to be awesome. Like, we're going to be chilling with the king. This is going to be so good. And what he doesn't, what they don't understand is that Jesus has come in to be meek and mild and humble and lowly. He's actually come in to die. It's his purpose. In fact, for, from the outside looking in for a disciple, they're going to go, have we missed it? Did we lose? But as he resurrects, we're going to begin to see that this is what was necessary so that he could arrive, that he could come a second time and make all things right. And so he begins to tell them signs. And I want to start sharing some of these signs in chapter 24. He starts talking about how will we know the end is coming? Here's some of the things you can know. Many false Christs. There's going to be wars and rumors of war, nation against nation, famines, 
earthquakes in various places. But then when we get to the end of this little part, look at verse 8. It says, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So what Jesus says, hey, you're going to see wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, but it doesn't mean the end has come. In fact, there's a lot of people that go, hey, this all happened during the, the disciples' time, the apostles' time. So, so we're waiting for this to happen, right? Like we've all seen false Christ, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. But Jesus says, hey, look, this is just the, the beginning. It's like a, a mother giving birth. <laughs> you know, you're ready. Nine months has happened, and, and the contractions come. And they're light. They're, they're pretty spread out. But it's beginning to tell you, hey, it's time to get to the hospital. And as that continues to progress, what happens? The contractions get worse and harder and more violent. They're they're shorter distance apart until you get to the ultimate moment where the baby's about to come. And it's like the utmost chaos and pain in that moment. And then the baby comes. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, when you see these things, false Christ, all these earthquakes, all this famine, like those are going to continue to get more and more intense and more and more frequent. But just know it's not saying the end is here. It's just preparing us that it's coming. You need to know that it's coming. And so he continues on and look at verse 15. He says, then there's going to be this moment. In verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let everybody flee to the mountains and run away, pretty much. The abomination of desolation, right? The temple of the Lord in Jerusalem that doesn't stand today. It was known as, hey, this is the presence of God. This is the favor of God with the people of Israel. And the abomination of desolation is this time where someone's going to come in and they're going to sacrifice on the altar of the Lord something that is just unthought of, right? It's going to be like pagan worship happening in the temple of God. In 300-ish B.C., there was actually someone that came in and, and sacrificed a pig. If you know anything about Jewish history, like that's like the worst animal ever. They sacrificed a pig on the altar. And that, that f- fulfilled part of Daniel. And, and here's the deal, right? This is all this prophecy stuff. It's called eschatology is the big theological word, right? The study of the end times. And people fall all over the place with how this all takes place. What, what we're trying to look at is, hey, what's the, what's the black and white things that Jesus is saying that's going to happen in this? But there's people that think about different things. Maybe this is going to happen again and be worse, or maybe it already happened. Uh, We we don't know for sure, right? But we know there's going to be this moment, and then here's what we do know for sure, right? You want just solid eschatology. You want to be able to go, hey, here's what I'll, I'll stake a flag in. Let's jump into 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Some people think that's the nation of Israel. Some people it's literal. The stars come, the moon, all the things. Some people think it's pagan worship that's going away. All all kinds of different thoughts. Here's what we know. Whatever, when all that stuff goes down, the great tribulation is here. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Here's here's what you can stake a flag in. 
This part is the moment where Jesus comes. Maybe he doesn't come all the way to the earth, but he comes in the sky. He sends out his angels. He gathers up the elect, the chosen, the people of God to go be with him. But did you catch this? What happened to the nations of the world when Jesus shows up? They mourn. Why? And this is going to be one of the biggest, oh man, we missed this, moments in human history. Like, whether they were like, hey, there's still time. Uh, Jesus, they've been talking about Jesus coming back from the beginning. Or maybe they're going, hey, I don't even believe in Christ. I don't believe in all this Christianity stuff. Doesn't matter. He's saying when, when that happens, the nations will look up and go, we missed it. And they will mourn and weep over the fact that they missed it. And this is where Jesus is beginning to allude for you and I what he's trying to get to to the end of chapter 25, which is what we're going to drill down in in a moment. And so he says, be ready. You've got to know that this hour is coming. Look at verse 36 of chapter 24. This is important. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. This is important for us to know. And there's been a lot of people say, hey, I know when this is going down. And, then, and Jesus is going, only the Father knows the day and the hour. Okay, so this is important. But then he goes on and he, what does he say? He says, the day of the Lord will be like the day of Noah. Like life will just be going on like normal. In the day of Noah, you got this crazy dude out in the desert, never seen rain. He said, hey, it's going to rain. I know I'm big, building this big boat, but you guys, I want you on board with me. And they're going, man, that's crazy. And they're giving in marriage and they're living life and they're walking as normal. And then it begins to rain and the Lord closes the door behind them and they're left in judgment. It catches them in a moment by surprise. He's going, this will be the same as the day of the Lord. People are just going to be living life. And no one knows when that comes. But he gives us as the church a very important command in 42. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. So Jesus feels like it's pretty necessary before he goes to the cross and resurrects. His last big speech to the boys, like he teaches other things along the way in the next few days. But this is massive. This is a big two-chapter thing. He's going, here's what you need to know, what you're about to see. I mean, going to the cross, me resurrecting, it's because this is happening. And I want you to be ready. Like, I love you, and I'm providing a way, but you got to be ready, and you got to stay awake. You've got to be prepared, and you've got to wait well. And from this moment on, as we continue through, he tells three parables, these stories, to kind of help you and I think through how do you get prepared, how do you wait well. And so I want us to look at the first one, and it kind of carries with it the idea of this, that you and I are supposed to wait as one expecting the time to come at any moment. In other words, let's not be caught by surprise. And so if you look in 24 at the very end, he starts talking about a faithful, wise servant and an unfaithful servant or a, a wicked servant. 45, he gives them things to do. This is 24, 45. He gives them things to do and he says, hey, I need you to be about my business. And it says that one of them goes to town like I'm getting busy. I'm going to do the things you've called me to. But you've got this other one. Pick up in 48. He says, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. It's this idea that he's like, man, we've been talking about the master coming back forever. I don't even know if he's still alive. Is he even coming back? It's been forever. I'm going to do what I want. Look, it says he begins to beat his servant, eats and drinks with the drunkards, all these things. And then in 50, the master shows up unexpectedly. 
And it says, and on that day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what you've got is a guy going, man, I've got plenty of time to get this thing figured out. I've got plenty of time to be prepared. And they're kind of like my son. The Lord shows up and he's like, wait, there's school? Wait, Jesus is coming back? This is real? And Jesus says, man, you need to live as one that's expecting for this to happen in a moment. And so what does that mean? What are the implications for you and I? What that means is you and I are supposed to live with a little bit of urgency in our lives that God has put us on a mission for his glory and and to tell others, hey, this moment, this, this day of the Lord, it is coming. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready. We're going to be like Hannah. We're going, hey, I'm going to to pack your lunch for you. I'm going to try to get you ready so you can get out the door at the same time. So we live with urgency as if it would happen today so we're not caught off guard. The next he moves into chapter 25 and tells a story, a parable of the ten virgins. I love this one. This is a good one. Uh, The idea as we jump into this one is to wait as one expecting the time to be delayed. So the first one was this idea of, hey, you need to be ready for this to happen at any moment. The next one is, hey, it's probably going to take a while, so don't fall asleep. (laughs) Be ready. Plan long term. And so let me tell you a little bit about this story. This is the story of 10 virgins that are about to go um, to the wedding. So there's one bride, nine bridesmaids. Uh, Jewish history and the way they did marriages was completely different. So in our culture today, like who's the most important person in the room at a marriage today? The bride, right? Like, if people even know the groom's name, like, that's a good day. You're like, hey, you know my name. Cool. No one cares about you. They want to see the bride. They want to see her beautified. Her parents paid for this thing. You're just ugly crying up there. We don't care about you. We want to see the bride. It's completely different in Jewish history and how they did things. One, uh, the ceremony, the feast, the party literally could last to like seven days. I'm like, dude, I, that's too long for people to be around on my, on my wedding day, but whatever. Uh, it would last forever. But the groom was the one that paid for this thing. Look, the bride was not the big deal. The groom arriving was the big deal. And so what would happen is the bride and her bridesmaids, the ten virgins, and the groom and his guys would be at his house. They're prepping for this literally seven-day party. The girls are getting ready. They're doing all their things, waiting for the groom to come. And this parable begins, and it says, with these ten virgins, there were five that were wise and five that were foolish. Just for fun, something I thought was humorous, the word foolish in Greek is moros. Where do you think we derive out of moros? That would be morons. So I love that the Lord's like, hey, there was five girls, really, really smart, five morons. Um, And so I want you to learn from these ladies. And so he begins, and here's what happens. When the groom comes, he takes the bridesmaid, and they they start on this, like, parade procession through the city. And it was kind of like, hey, if you invited people in your community to come, you go on this parade line walking through the city, and people are like, hey, it's time. We're We're going to the marriage feast. Come on, get in line. Also, some people would throw you money, so you're like, hey, I think there's someone, let's, let's take that long, let's go around there real quick, make sure they can throw us some money as well. But this big procession happened until you got to the marriage feast. And what you have is these brides waiting, this bride and the, bride, uh, the bridesmaids waiting for the groom and the groomsmen to show up. And it gets late. He's running super late. In fact, it says that he doesn't show up till midnight. I'm like, yeah, I'm asleep. 9.30, this, he's not coming. I'm sorry, we'll try something else. Maybe there's another dude out there for you. Let's go to bed. But he shows up and they begin to announce, hey, the groom is here. He's on his way. 
And they wake up, and one of the things they need is a torch, a lantern-type thing, to go on this big parade through the streets. It runs off of oil. And so you've got five of the wise ladies that said, hey, we don't really know exactly when the groom is coming, but we're going to get enough oil ready so that if it's late and he's delayed, we'll still have what we need. And the five morons, uh, the five unwise, wake up. The groom's here, and they're like, dude, we did not have enough oil. And they begin to ask the other ladies, hey, can we have some of your oil? They're like, there's only enough for us. Run to the dude that sells oil down the street, knock on his door, and maybe you can wake him up and get it. And as those five ladies go to get more oil, the groom comes, they have the parade, they get to the house, they go into the wedding feast, and he closes the door. Then I want you to look at chapter 25, verse 11. So what happens next is pretty tragic. It says, afterward, the, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore you know, neither the day nor the hour. So we're supposed to wait as one to, as to not be surprised, and we're supposed to wait as one that knows the time will be delayed. Right? I love the implications even for this for the church. Look, we are supposed to live in a way that we, we walk out of these doors, we go, hey, everything that God's given me is for his glory, my good, it's to advance the kingdom, and so I'm going to live with urgency, knowing that people have souls, and, and this is going to happen. But at the same time, we're going, but it could be delayed for generation and generations, right? The disciples were like, this is happening in our time. This should have already happened. Thousands of years have passed since then, right? And so part of what's important about the church is that not only do we live with a fervor for the lost day to day, but we also have to be thinking organizationally and strategically about the future, right? It's not just about today, but it's also about the fact, I want my kids to know the truth of the gospel. I want them to be discipled. I want their kids to be able to do this and be discipled. And so as a church, we're going, how do we, how do we make something? How do we plan and do something that, that goes for generations teaching the truth until he comes? That's what's beautiful, I think, about being a church plan. Like this day when we build this building over here on the highway, me and you are going to be dead and gone, but hopefully we did something in these years getting people ready for this to continue to move and move and generations of people hear the gospel until the Lord returns. That's, that's something big to be a part of. That's something God's going, hey, I've given you the right, the privilege at Wellspring to be a part of something for generations. Wait as though he's going to be delayed. Be prepared and to wait well. The next parable he moves into is one that a lot of us hear. It gets taught on a lot. If you haven't heard it, I'll just quickly break it down. Uh, you've got slaves, and the master comes, and he says, hey, I'm about to go out of town. And, and so I'm going to give you some money, and I want you to multiply this money. Uh, the principle that we, we kind of take away from this idea is that we are to wait as bond servants or slaves commissioned to multiply the master's assets. We're to wait as bond servants or slaves commissioned to multiply the master's assets, because here's what happens. Three dudes. He's like, here, I'm going to give you five talents. A talent is a weight. Uh, so uh, one, tw one talent of uh, silver is like 20 years of pay. And so he's like, I'm going to give you five talents. I'm going to give you two talents, and you get one. I'm going to return at some point. You need to be about my business. The five and the two guys, they go out, they multiply this. The master comes back and they're like, hey, here's what you gave us plus what we, we did. We toiled to multiply what you gave us. And he goes, man, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. And then you had the last dude 
It's like, hey, I, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to mess this up. I'm going to bury this in the ground. When he comes back, I'll go get it. And the master comes. He's like, here, look, I, here, I didn't lose it. And listen to how the master responds to him. He says this in verse 20. So I was afraid, and I went and hid the talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours, verse 26 of, of chapter 25. But as his master answered to him, you wicked and slothful servant. You wicked and lazy servant. You did nothing with your talent. And he finishes this parable in verse 30, and he says this about that wicked and slothful servant. He says, and cast the worthless, the worthless servant into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You gotta you got love some just good old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone like this is happening today. Uh, you know, nothing to really just make you go, oh my gosh, I need to know that I know Jesus. But this is what's happening. And Jesus is trying to warn. Now, I used to struggle with this particular parable because I'd be like, is this about like making money? Like what if the stocks went down? He was pretty smart to bury it. Like, what if he invested and got less? That has nothing to do with your financial prudence. So really, I mean, maybe some of that. Here, here's what it's saying. This is kind of like 1 John that we went through, right? The marks of the believer are things that just come out of us because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And to be the wise, prepared servant means that you've placed your faith in Jesus. He is your Savior. The Spirit lives in you. And this just permeates out of you. That you will be a person that you look at all that you have, your giftings, your abilities, your treasures, your time, and you go, I've been entrusted all of this to multiply this for the kingdom of God. He says, if you're a believer, it's not something that you'll go, man, I got to think through whether or not I'm going to do it. He says, when the Spirit's in you, it just happens. And you go, I, I know that I've been given this task to multiply the kingdom of God for his glory. And so with, without even a burden at times, I'm, I'm going to give everything I've got to make your name famous. I'll, I'll give it away, my time, my ability, my money. I'll support the local church. I'll, I'll help people in need. Like, I'm going to do this. He says it's not something that you've got to work up to. He goes, when the Spirit's in you, it just starts coming out of you. And so what he says is, hey, listen, if, if you're in Christ... You're going to be about multiplying the things of the kingdom of God. If you live a life where you hoard everything for yourself, your time, your abilities, your treasures, and you go, hey, I'm just about me, he's going, you, you probably aren't in Christ. You're probably separated from this because it just boils out of people that know Jesus. You're going to multiply for the kingdom. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, and we're going to struggle with it at times, and we'll forget it, but the overall aim of our heart is going, how do I use everything I have to, to, for your glory? And if you ask for all of it, I give it away because you are my king. You are my master. Being a Christian, being a slave of Christ is not union work. We don't get to go, hey, I'm the break time, bro. I'll be back. I'll let you know. We don't get to do that. We don't get to complain and say, I, th I think I'm supposed to have a different job. You're asking too much of me. No, we go, I got no rights. Everything I have is just because you've given it to me. And if you want it, it's yours. And he says, hey, man, the person that has been given all these things and does nothing for the kingdom of God is not a Christian. If you live your life in such a way, he's going, you're a wicked and slothful servant, and you're not of Christ. It's hard. It's hard stuff. But it's truth, right? This is why Christ is going, you're about to see this magnificent thing of me going to the cross and resurrecting. So let's just get real for a minute. This is happening. The day of the Lord's coming. This is happening. And so from there, he moves into the final 
kind of um, plea with his disciples. Let's look at the final judgment in 31. So he has said, look, here's going to be some signs. But what you need to know is I'm coming. And the nations are going to mourn when I come. And have you been prepared? And are you waiting well? How are we prepared? We place our faith in Christ as Savior. How do we wait well? We're doing everything we can to prepare others, to help them get prepared, and and to serve for the glory of God. And then the judgment comes. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is this is what the disciples have been waiting for. Like, hey, we're about to take over, right? Like you're about to do this thing, be the king. He's like, no. No, but there will be a day that I'm coming back and I will sit on my throne as the victorious warrior king and the earth will mourn that I've come. And so that time comes. And here's what he says in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right hand. This is the, the idea of honor, his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Do you want some good theology right here? Here's a quick moment. As Jesus is calling his sheep and he's saying, I want you to inherit what I made for you before I even spoke the world into being. I knew your name. I called you. I've loved you from eternity past to eternity present and future. Now enter into what I've done for you before you even drew a breath. 35, he begins to talk about the difference. What's the difference between these sheep and these goats? Right? He, he, he has said, hey, it's like a shepherd that separates the sheep and goats. Here's what you need to know. Uh, back then, specifically, like the goats and the sheep would actually kind of run together sometimes. And it talked about the fact that even in the night, they had to separate them out because they, they had different needs, the sheep and the goats. But if you would look from a distance, and, and you didn't know a ton about sheep and goats, which maybe you're an expert, I don't know. For me, I'd be like, I don't know, I see the animals. Uh, but if, if you're not an expert, you're looking down, and he says, hey, they, they're running together, and you might not even be able to distinguish between the two animals from a distance. They run together, they act the same, they eat the same, they're doing the same things, but they're completely different people, completely different animals. And, and it's the same principle as that he's trying to teach the, the church. And we may come to Wellspring on Sunday mornings. We may sing the same songs, talk about the same things, go and do the same mission trips. But he's saying, hey, listen, if you don't have the marks of all these other things of being prepared and waiting well, there's going to be a day that though you played the part well, you will be separated. And so he says, what's the distinguishing mark between the two? That's kind of important. And I want to read this because this has been widely uh, misinterpreted by people. So I want to give you first the bad interpretations and then uh, what I would say is what the scripture is trying to teach us. Here's the difference between the two. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see, the sick or see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, truly, I say to you, to the one, uh, uh, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
Now let's talk about uh, some thoughts that are incorrect that have kind of circulated around this. One, it, it, there's this idea, and I can see where people get it, right? It's like, okay, wait, it, to be a sheep means you better be doing some good things, right? So we better get out there. We better start taking care of people. We better start uh, helping the poor. We better go to the jails. We better see this. So we solidify that we're sheep. That's not what this is saying, right? That's a works-based theology. It's this idea of I can, I can do enough good stuff to get into heaven. We know that's not truth, right? Jesus said faith alone in me is what saves. The, the next false interpretation is then that the church in some way is, is supposed to wrap solely around this idea of mercy and justice ministry. Now, I want to be careful. Uh, the Bible has all types of places where it calls you and I to be about mercy and justice, to help those in need, etc., to help the poor. That's not what this is speaking to. This is speaking to something totally different in this moment. And the question we've got to answer to know what he's speaking to is, who are the brothers that we did this to? He said, you've done it to the least of these brothers. Who are the brothers? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew who these people are. I want you to look at Matthew 12, 46 through 50. We'll have it on the screen. Jesus, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, his real mother, and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The brothers of Jesus are the disciples of Christ for all generations. How do we know the people that do the will of the Father? First John taught us this all the last several weeks. We place our faith and hope in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the will of God, that we would love him and serve others. John's saying the same message. To be a Christian, to have the Spirit in you means that you're going to love the Father, you're going to accept Christ as your Savior, and you're going to love the brethren. It's the mark of the believer. What Jesus is now saying is, how do I know you're a sheep? Because you were someone that used everything I've given you. All your giftings, your talents, your abilities, your resources, your time. And the utmost important thing was to go, I want to multiply the kingdom and love my church well. I want to love the people of God well. I want to give up what I probably is rightfully mine and, and for the sake of others. Man, and we see the opposite of this so often. Not in this church ever. No one in this church. Not you guys. But I've seen many of times, right? The people that enter in a door and come to church, wherever that may be, their main concern is, what am I going to get from this place? What are they going to do for me? How are they acknowledging me and taking care of me? You may have people that are really wildly successful out in the business world, and they come in here and they go, hey, I'm a boss out there. I need to be a boss in here. I'm not saying that being wildly successful is bad and that there's plenty of wildly successful people we need helping us. But this, this mentality of going, no, I'm in charge. <laughs> like, do you know who I am? Let, let me run something because I've got a lot to give. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know what the difference between the sheep and the goat is? That within the church, the people that value that above loving and serving others, however that may seem, the ones that value their own uh, kingdom, their own identity, their own treasures above helping out with the, the congregation of the church. He's going, there's a good chance you're a goat. Like, I know you're here and you're hanging out, but the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. And that's what happens next. 
he looks at these other guys and he says, the same exact things, only the opposite. He didn't do any of these things. And the people are like, wait, 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 when did we not do these to you? And he's like, you, you didn't do it to the least of my brothers, which would make sense, right? It makes sense that people that don't know Jesus, that live outside of Wellspring, don't come up here during the day and go, man, how can we just help the brothers of, of Christ at Wellspring? That makes sense. <laughs> but what he is saying is it becomes a natural thing because the Spirit is rewiring our heart that if you are really saved, there's something in you that goes, no, I want to love the brethren well. I'm willing to sacrifice for the good of those who are the people of God to multiply the kingdom of God. And then he finishes with a really sobering statement, verse 48. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Look, church, I know that we've kind of gotten away from wanting to preach, you know, in a way that feels hard and all these things, but the reality is like you and I have a soul that's eternal and there's either heaven or hell and that's it. And Jesus is about to go to the cross and resurrect. He's going, I love you so much. I'm about to spend an immense amount of time telling you how to look forward to this, how to get prepared and how to wait well so that when this time comes, the day of the Lord comes, you line up with the sheep. And I love how Paul had this mindset. Look what he said. I have this on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. Paul understood this. He understood the idea of waiting well. He said, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. What's a mark of a sheep? The overarching aim of your life is to please the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, he's going, look, this judgment day is coming. And because of that, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He carried with him the understanding that what it means to use his abilities and his talents for the multiplying of the kingdom of God is to go, there is a real judgment coming. And I'm going to spend my life investing in others and persuading you as best I can. I'm going to pack your lunch. I'm going to pack your bag. And I'm going to be like, we're leaving at 7.15. Don't miss it because dad's going to leave you. Like, come, get ready. This is the mark of Paul and what it means to be a believer who has the spirit living in you. If we get sidetracked, and this isn't what our life is about, there's this sobering response today where he's going, you need to really check yourself. Because this just flows out of you if you have the Spirit in you. And so he says, are you prepared? And the disciples have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> like they have no idea the cross is, like we're looking in from a different perspective, right? The cross they didn't understand, resurrection they didn't understand. But here's, here's how I want to finish today. Jesus is like, how do you tell between a sheep and a goat? Look at all these things they did for the least of my brothers. And what were they? Helped with strangers. They clothed the naked. They, they visited the sick and those in prison, all these things. But what's amazing to me is Christ does this for us first. We were strangers of God and we were welcomed because of Christ. We were naked and clothed and he clothed us with a robe of righteousness. We were sick, we were dead, and he visited us and he made us well and alive. We were in prison in our sin and our condemnation and our conscience was full of guilt and shame and he freed us by the gospel. He says, look, I'm, I'm gonna be the forerunner because this day's coming. And so be prepared and wait well. 
Live a life of stewarding yourself for the glory of God. Don't let the door get closed and you be left. Because it, it's going to come suddenly. But live as one that it may be delayed. And man, get about the business of God. For the glory of God. So that you can be prepared. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you. This is still your crying out to uh, the disciples and humankind that you love them and that you have prepared a way for them to have hope and life, to enter in as a good and faithful servant, to find rest in the Lord. But God, also there's, there's some sobering things in this passage of Scripture. It's pretty black and white, Lord. Uh, there's, no, there's no gray area here when you say that these will be what the faithful servants look like. And man, God, I, I know we don't all get that perfect, and we're not, we're not all doing this uh, well all the time, but, but there's this moment in trusting in you to be prepared that you give us your spirit, and you begin to illuminate our heart and our mind to do these things. And so I think for all of us, it's healthy to go, man, and is this really me? And so God, I pray that you would just have your way.